0: This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. We just looked at a subject called the shaking. We've looked at the identity of the remnant through this seminar. In our first session, we took a look at very specifically Remnant in the Old Testament, remnant in the New Testament, and God's raising up an end-time remnant. In our second session, we looked at the message of the three angels as it is relevant to contemporary society. And in the third presentation, we looked a little bit at the idea of the shaking. And in the session between, somebody brought out an interesting point. You know, I I was bringing out the point that In every generation, God has called out a movement. Abraham, he called out. Israel, he called out from Egypt. New Testament church, called out. The ecclesia, ecc, out of, ecclesia, called out. And we talked about Protestantism, called out of the apostasy. And the Advent movement called out. And we raised the question, will God call out an end time movement? And we pointed out that... God has raised up the Adventist church, it's the remnant. We looked at the concept of the shaking, that it's not a shaking out. uh, It is not a calling out at the end, it's a shaking out. And the remnant remain faithful, loyal, and true to God. Somebody brought out, and I thought it was a good point, in Revelation 3, God says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. What is that? That's a shaking out. That's a shaking out. In Revelation 3, those that are spewed out leave but the remnant who remain open the door of their heart to Christ, and they receive the gold, which is that new heart faith experience with him. Their lives are transformed, so the acts and deeds of their lives, based on that faith and transforming power of God, are righteous. And they have the eye salve in which they see, the world as he sees it and go out to witness for him. So Revelation 3 is not a message of condemnation, but it's an appeal by the Amen, the one who, prena- who speaks to his last church Laodicea. It is an invitation to life transformed holiness. Well let's pray and then we're going to talk in this session about a last-day movement that will sweep the world in the glory of God and the destiny to which every one of us have been called. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I praise you and thank you for everything that you have done for us as a people, as a church. Lord, we think of the fact that this church is not everything you want it to be, but neither are we. Just as the church has human frailty and failures, we reflect those in our own lives. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your pardon. We thank you for your creative, life changing power. And we thank you for what Jesus has done for us, is doing for us in heaven's sanctuary, and will yet do for us. We thank you that as young people we are called to a destiny, a destiny in which this world will be lit with your glory and your work on earth will soon be finished. May that be a reality in this generation, in our lives, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. When Jesus was about ready to ascend to heaven, he made this statement to his disciples. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That statement seemed to be well nigh impossible but the Great Commission was accompanied by the Great Promise see if you have the Great Commission without the Great Promise your witness will fall powerless so the Great Commission is go preach the gospel to the whole world but here in Acts chapter 1 is the Great Promise let's read it together but you shall receive power let's start again but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the great commission is go preach the gospel. The great promise is you shall be witnesses to me where? Jerusalem. That's your community. Judea and Samaria, the neighboring communities. Jerusalem, your city, Judea, your province, Samaria, the neighboring province, and, of course, to the ends of the earth. Now the disciples waited, they confessed their sins, they prayed, they believed, and heaven answered. The Holy Spirit was poured out in abundant measure on the day of Pentecost. Now the mighty outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost was heaven's gift confirming the Father's acceptance of the magnificent sacrifice of Christ on Calvary's cross, I want you to see something quite interesting. If you have your Bible, take it and turn to Acts, the second chapter. This is something that is often overlooked when one discusses the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. My question is, where did the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost come from And what did the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost signify? Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is poured out. Peter is speaking. Now, it's interesting as well when you look at this, because if you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came. Everyone heard them speak in his own language. That is because they were speaking in the language. It was the gift of tongues, not the gift of ears. Verse 8, how is it that we hear in each our own language in which we are born? That it names all those nations, the people that were there, Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. Here it speaks about people from Libya. That's northern Africa, Cyrene, Rome, Europe. So, Cretans and Arabs, you have at least three continents here. You have Europe, you have Asia, you have Africa, the known world, present Jews came to worship at Jerusalem on the Feast of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon them and they went back to their countries communicating the gospel. One of the reasons that God has brought immigrants to these shores. And one of the reasons God is bringing now, I believe, scores of Muslims into Europe. You see, many people are are really concerned about this immigration problem. And I realize there are social concerns, and there are economic concerns, and there are political concerns, and terrorist concerns. But we as a church have a different concern. And our concern is is reaching people from these countries with the gospel that we could never reach if they're in their own countries. So here, God brings, And these varying groups, it is very interesting too. Did you notice it said they came from Rome? These were lay people from Rome that heard the gospel in Jerusalem. They were Jews. They were converted to Christ. They went back to Rome and started a church. So the church at Rome was lay initiative. The Apostle Paul started churches in various places. He preached in Ephesus, for example. He preached in Colossia. Not so in Rome. Rome was a church raised up by lay people. I praise God for lay people that have a passion for Christ in the gospel to raise up his people, his mission. But here's what I want you to see. Let your eyes drop down to verse 35. Verse 35. Peter is speaking in his sermon, and he explains to the crowd what was going on in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So Peter says in Acts 2 verse 35, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, that Jesus Christ ascended to the holy place of the sanctuary, appeared before God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. The outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, signaled Christ's acceptance by the Father. So the disciples were told by Jesus, wait and look to the sanctuary. And as you look to the sanctuary, when the sacrifice of Christ is accepted by the Father, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on the earthly church. Just as, follow the pattern, the disciples thought that Christ was going to establish an earthly kingdom. When Christ died on the cross, the disciples were bitterly disappointed. They looked from their disappointment to the sanctuary above, and seeing and sensing what was going on there, when Jesus' sacrifice was accepted in the sanctuary, the Holy Spirit was poured out to launch the New Testament Christian Church. Fast forward 2,000 years, another body of believers believe that Christ is going to establish his kingdom on earth. They believe, based on the 2,300-year prophecy, that Christ will come. Did he come? No. Didn't come where they thought he was going to come, but did he come to the place of his appointment? Man's disappointment was the hour of God's appointment. So Jesus came to the most holy place, and out of the disappointment of 31 from the holy place, he poured out his Spirit to launch Christianity. Out of the disappointment in A.D. 44 from the most holy place, he'll pour out his Holy Spirit in a climax of the work. So what we see taking place in the book of Acts is a miniature of what God is going to do at end time to finish his work. 120 disciples met in the upper room. Now, there were some estimates that the population was 180 million. I think it was much too high. We talked about that. That's 180 million of the Roman Empire. But I'm just going to use that figure because I figured the math on that, and I didn't figure the math on the earlier figure. So you get 120 that are meeting in the upper room. If the population were 180 million, it was not. That's high. But you'll still get the point. Um, That would be one Christian to 1.4 million. One Christian to 1.4 million. Can you believe what they were facing? It probably was 80 million, probably one Christian to 800,000. Explosive growth in Acts. I mean, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and the unbelievable happens when you look at the book of Acts. Acts 2, verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. In Acts... Chapter 2, they woke up in the morning with 120 Christians, went to sleep that night, and there were 3,000 that were baptized. You come to Acts 4, verse 4. Read it with me. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So about 5,000 were baptized in Acts chapter 4. By Acts chapter 4, which is just a few months after Pentecost, you have now... At least 15,000 believers at least 15,000 something unusual is taking place here in the book of Acts Acts chapter 6 verse 7 the Word of God spread the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many priests were obedient to the faith well here you have something new occurring up until this time hundreds and thousands were baptized now, you have a great many of the priests, the religious leaders are being baptized. They're becoming Christians, bringing their whole Jewish congregations with them. So, Acts chapter 2, 3,000 are baptized. Acts chapter 4, 5,000 are baptized. Acts chapter 6, the Word of God is spreading, a number of disciples are multiplying, and many priests, religious leaders, are coming into the faith. One Roman writer wrote this He said, You're everywhere referring to the Christians, you're in our armies, you're in our navies, you're in our senate, you're in our marketplaces. In relatively a short time, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God's work went forward. Pliny the Younger was the governor of Bithynia. And he wrote about the spread of Christianity. And he said this, For many of every age, of every social class, even of both sexes, are being called to trial and will be called. That is, many Christians of every age, many of every social class, Christians, even of both sexes, male and females, they're being called to trial and will be called. Nor cities alone, but villages and even rural areas have been invaded by the infection of this superstition, that's Christianity. So here you have Pliny the Younger, as the governor of Bethynia, who writes to the governor And he says to the governor, Christianity is spreading so rapidly that it seems every area has been invaded by the infection of this superstition, Christianity. Under the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God did more than one could possibly imagine or think possible. Tertullian, who was a Roman lawyer, wrote this. Nearly all of the citizens of all the cities, that's in his province, are Christians. How could this happen? You know, I am often asked, how in the world can we ever expect to see God's work on earth finished? More people are being born than are being warned. How could it be possible for a small group like Seventh-day Adventists to believe that God is going to mightily finish his work through this movement. When I look at the book of Acts and see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts and see God move so powerfully, so dramatically, so incredibly, when I see that small group of 120 believers that met in the upper room being filled with the Spirit, committed to Christ, going out and sharing Jesus, I recognize that he did it once and he can do it again. I recognize that the same Lord that poured out his Spirit from the holy place of the sanctuary can pour out his Spirit from the most holy place and that he himself can finish his work. In Acts chapter 9, we see something quite interesting. Uh, Here in Acts 9, you remember the apostle Paul is converted. That makes a major difference. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has that vision, preaches as well to Cornelius. A Roman leader is baptized. And rather than building large churches in a few geographical centers, the disciples planted churches in communities throughout the Mediterranean world. The Bible talks about churches being multiplied. Uh, Acts 9 verse 31, let's read it together. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. What is the antecedent? What was, what was multiplied here? What was it? Then the what? Churches. So here you have a church planting movement. Churches are edified, that's they're built up, but here the churches are being multiplied. I praise God for Adventist churches that have a vision. When they get to 200, 250, 300, they say, we've got to plant a church in a neighboring community. It is this church planting that keeps the church vibrant and alive, members that are saying we have a mission to fulfill for Christ. There is no genuine revival without a corresponding evangelistic outreach. And that's what you see in the book of Acts. You see prayer, you see Bible study, and you see outreach. The closer you draw to Christ in prayer, the more you long to share his love with others. The more you study the Word and that Word burns in your heart the more you want to share the Word with others! And the more you're involved in evangelism and sharing the Word the more you are involved in witness, the more you want to pray The more you pray the more you want to witness and the more you witness the more you want to pray The more you study the Word the more you want to share it and the more you share it the more you want to study the Word, God himself was moving in the book of Acts. Acts 12 verse 24, the word of God grew and multiplied. God's word went forth throughout the Mediterranean world in Ephesus and Colossia, in Galatia and Corinth, in Thessalonica, in Philippi and Rome. What do you notice about those names on the board? They were all major cities. The disciples did not flee from the chicagos the new yorks the los Angeleses, the miamis they didn't flee from the great cities the atlantis of their time the paris the londons the sao paulos and panama cities and so forth they the disciples went into the major population bases committed to christ armed with the spirit of christ cities were moved by god In Colossians chapter one, verse 23, this remarkable statement is made. Colossians was written about 30 to 35 years after the outpouring of the Spirit in the book of Acts. The gospel which you heard, Paul said, was preached to every creature under heaven. Now, I can't explain that statement, but I believe it. God moved so dramatically that the gospel that you heard was preached every creature under heaven the need was great the time was right they met their conditions and God fulfilled his promise just as God raised up the New Testament Christian Church and just as the New Testament Christian Church raised up out of disappointment and failure on their knees prayed and received the Holy Spirit and the gospel went to the then known world So after the disappointment of 1844, God raised up a man by the name of William Miller. And the Advent movement was to touch the world with the power of God. The disappointment of Calvary in in 31 AD led them to humility, confession, repentance, and deep soul searching. The cross prepared them for Pentecost, trusting in the promise of their resurrected Lord. So their disappointment prepared them for Pentecost. Will Pentecost be repeated? In this generation will God raise up a generation of young people and adults out of the disappointment of 1844 to proclaim his message to the end of the earth and we might even ask how can Pentecost be repeated God did the impossible in the first century and here's the incredible good news he is going to do it again God is going to do the seemingly impossible again testimonies volume 7 page 33 All that the Apostles did, every church member today is to do. Now that statement is amazing. All that the Apostles did, every church member today is to do. And we are to work with as much fervor to be accompanied by the Holy Spirit in as much greater measure as the increase of wickedness demands a more decided call to repentance. Is the world today more sinful and wicked than it was 2,000 years ago. If indeed it is, and it is, that calls for as much greater measure of the Holy Spirit, and the promise is God is going to give that measure of the Spirit to us. When you think about what happened in the New Testament, God delivered men and women from demons. God moved powerfully, and miracles were wrought. God moved for the outpouring of His Holy Spirit. And as the result of that, hundreds, thousands became Christians. Great Controversy, page 611 and 612, reading together. Let's read it. The great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestation of the power of God than marked its opening. Isn't this what God calls us to be crying for? Isn't this what God calls us to be pleading for? the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a marked way to finish his work on earth. Zechariah chapter 10 verse 1 says, "Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. Is this the time of the latter rain? Are we living in that time? We are. And what is the commission from heaven? Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He'll give the showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. So the invitation is, that groups of young people and groups of adults on their knees, crying out to God, God, send us the power of the latter rain. Now, the early rain came to germinate the seed. Once the seed began to grow, the latter rain was poured out so the harvest would be reaped. Now, some people have said they haven't understood the agricultural psycho of Israel, and they've thought that the early rain would be poured out in the spring and the latter rain in the fall. Not quite so in Israel. In Israel, what would happen would be grain would be planted probably in early Septemberish or so, and uh, the early rain would, would be co- flow down in about October. The crops would grow latter rain more toward the springtime and the harvest of grain would be reaped other crops would be sown during this time as well the early rain germinates so the early rain poured out in the day of Pentecost was a miniature of what's going to happen in the mighty power of the latter rain at end time the early rain germinated the seed of the gospel and the gospel was spread rain is a symbol of the Holy Spirit the latter rain will be poured out in abundant measure. The Holy Spirit will come with mighty power and at, at end time. God has a divine timetable. Christ was baptized on time. Christ was crucified on time. Christ ascended to heaven on time. He resurrected on time. He ascended to heaven on time. And Jesus, again, will has a divine timetable. This is the time of the latter rain. Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit in early rain power on time to launch the Christian church. We're living in the time of the latter rain, a time to be seeking God, a time to open our hearts. Ellen White puts it this way. The dispensation in which we are now living is to be, to those that ask, the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. Ask for his blessing. It's time we were more intense in our devotion. To us is committed the arduous but happy, glorious work of revealing Christ to those who are in darkness. We are called to proclaim the special truths for this time. For all this, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is essential. We should pray for it. The Lord expects us to ask it. We've not been wholehearted in the work. Wouldn't it be an exciting thing if young people in their school, in their academy, in their colleges, young people who go to secular universities, gather together with Adventist friends. Wouldn't it be an incredibly exciting thing if once a week, twice a week, young people were gathering together to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? You know, my wife and I, have seen something really miraculous happen over the last couple of years. The church in which we go has had about 30 members for many, many years, but we've seen in the last two or three years that church... Now, every Sabbath, there are between 90 and 100 people there, but you know, if you would go to that church at 8.30 on Sabbath morning, you'd find people praying that the Holy Spirit would be poured out, that God will send people to the church. People driving by, see the sign, have been coming in. The other day, and we're building a new church, I told some of you about it earlier, we're building what we call the Living Hope Seventh-day Adventist Community Church. My wife and I moved into this community about six years ago. There was no Seventh-day Adventist church immediately in the community, so we went to a church about 25 minutes away. That church is now joining us in our community. But my wife began walking by a piece of property in our community, and it said this piece of property is set aside for a church to be built upon. It's a new community, and they set aside three pieces of property for churches. One had already been built. Our community has about 10,000 people in the community, but we have about 100,000 people within 25 miles of our community, maybe 150,000. So it's a great evangelistic territory. Not a lot of Adventists living in that whole area. Well, when my wife walked by this property, she didn't say much to me. She saw this sign church site for sale, and she began to pray on this property, asking God for the outpouring of the Spirit upon this community and asking God that this church could, this property could someday be a house, a 7th Avenue Adventist church and a training center. After a while, and it's quite a long story, so I'll abbreviate it, but after a while, she talked to me about it, and God began to bring in some funding. We contacted the folk that owned that property, and they showed us a different piece of property right in the center of Market Square, and it was really a miracle how we got this property right in the center of Market Square. Not the one she prayed on, but one not far from it, and one much, much better than that. And God began to bring in funds. We began to then think about building, and our project was a $4.4 million project. We're about $250,000 from completing the project now, and God has brought in funds. $10 here, $20 here, and more. It's just amazing. And we'll have now a church, an evangelistic training center, And our evangelistic training center is different. It's not like for six months, nine months. We recognize that many students are going to school and we have pastors that we're going to target specifically for pastors, for lay people, for young adults. We only have classes like for one week and we concentrate on that one week and like every other month, about six weeks a year, we focus on our classes and we study the Bible together, study everything from health evangelism to prophecy to small groups and so forth. I was down at our building. Our building is being built now. It will open in March uh, with um, our own church, and then we'll have our dedication in April. Um, And so I was there the other day. And this just is an indication of how the Holy Spirit works. The church was being built, and I was standing in the parking lot with some young people telling them about the facility. And I saw a lady walk by, and some of our young people went up to talk to this lady. and They signaled me, and I came over, and I began talking to her. And I could tell from her accent that she wasn't from the United States. And I'm fairly good with accents, so I can usually guess, but I, in my mind I couldn't guess. I knew she was Asian, but I didn't know where she came from. And I had no idea, so I said to her, do you mind telling me what country were you, were you born in? And she looked at me and wouldn't say a thing. She said, and she was kind of rude, in fact, and I couldn't figure it out. I said, I thought it was a simple question, so I asked her again, would you mind telling me what country you were born in? And she didn't say anything. She said, I take a walk here often. and just I thought that was kind of strange. And we talked and talked and talked and talked some more. And pretty soon I saw her prejudice beginning melting away. She said, when's this church going to open? I said, well, it's going to open in March. And we have our dedication in April. And we talked a little bit more. And then she looked up at me, and this is what she said. She said, I am a Muslim born in the country of Afghanistan. But I no longer believe in Islam. And I was walking down this road today praying for Jesus, to Jesus. I don't know Jesus at all, but I was praying to Jesus, asking Jesus to work a miracle. And he, she said, then I met you. Hallelujah. And we talked in the parking lot of this church is just being built about Christ, about how we can change people's lives, about what he can do. I said then to her, can I pray? She said, sure, we gathered around these students and this Muslim woman who said she no longer believed in Islam but she was looking for, for Jesus. We prayed together in that parking lot. She began to walk away and she turned and looked at me. And I will never forget what she said. She said this, she said, Pastor, I was walking praying for a miracle. And this might be the very miracle I was praying for. And we've invited her, of course, to our church. No human genius could orchestrate that. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And as we are praying that God will give us providential opportunities, as we are praying that God will open hearts and open minds, He is going to do much, much more than that. You can anticipate that in your personal life, that just what God did in the first century, that he will do again for you. Just as he used the disciples, he will use you. Just, you may be a busy medical professional in your office, God's gonna give you divine opportunities. You may be a student at university, God's gonna give you divine opportunities. You may be one who is working as a computer expert or an engineer or a mechanic or a painter or an electrician, God is going to give you opportunities. You may be a housewife, and God's going to give you opportunities in your neighborhood. Notice, as we pray, God will do some things miraculously. God's end time church has been given a special message and a special mission. And God promises special power to proclaim the message and complete the mission. The mission is huge, but the power of God is greater than the mission. You know, Napoleon once led his men to, into Egypt. That's when they discovered 1798, the Rosetta Stone. And as he did, Napoleon took his armies and they came to the pyramids. And as they stood before the pyramids, Napoleon said this. He said, gentlemen, gentlemen. The history of the ages is looking down upon us. Napoleon's armies in front of the pyramids, looking at the grandeur, the splendor, the magnificence of the pyramids, he said, Gentlemen, the history of the ages is looking down upon us. And I I would rephrase Napoleon's statement this way The history of the ages. Is looking down upon an end time generation appealing to us to open our hearts to receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for the finishing of God's work on earth no matter how much you and I want to go home God wants us to go home even more no matter how much we want to see the work of God on earth finished Jesus wants the work of God on earth to be finished more he longs for the famines the natural disasters, the crime, the terrorism. He longs for that to cease so that humanity can rise to its true destiny and become everything that heaven wants it to be. The question might, though, be asked, we live at the crossroads of eternity and all heaven is looking down upon us. God is going to do exceedingly abundantly above what we ask or think. Acts the Apostles, page 600 said, there is nothing that the world needs so much as the manifestation through humanity of the Savior's love. All heaven is waiting for men and women through whom God can reveal the power of Christianity. All heaven is waiting for it, and the earth is looking for it. God longs to do amazing things through you. Now you might be asking, how can I personally Receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in my own life. What is the criteria to receiving the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? I want to spend the last 15 minutes of class looking at some biblical principles that God himself gives to us for the personal reception of the Holy Spirit in the life. Is the Holy Spirit some mystical experience that in some way magically comes upon us. Is God waiting for some point of time to pour out His Spirit? And is it some predetermined date on the calendar? Are there some things we can do to personally receive the Spirit of God? Notice there's that interesting statement in Ellen White where she says, the Holy Spirit may be falling on hearts all around you, but you may not notice it or recognize it. What are some very simple things that you can do this week and next week to open your heart to receive the Holy Spirit in fullness of measure? Now, let me put it this way so that nobody misunderstands. When you look at the subject of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has a variety of functions, okay? Before you and, ever, you and I ever turn to Christ, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, Romans 2 verse 4, it is the Holy Spirit that leads us to repentance. Uh, John 16 verse 13 and onward, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he'll guide you into all truth. So, before a person ever mentally consents at all, the Holy Spirit's working in their life. You remember what it says in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 10 and 11, God has put eternity in their hearts. So, uh, John chapter 1, Christ is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. Everybody born into this world is being impacted one way or another by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that they have to make any consent for that. He's moving. When that individual yields to the prompting of the Spirit, the Spirit comes into their life and through the living Christ changes them. So repentance is a gift of God prompted and indicted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit guides us. Conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit. Growth in grace is a work of the Holy Spirit. As we grow in grace, it's the Holy Spirit that day by day reveals truth to us. It's the Holy Spirit that guides us. So Christians are convicted by the Spirit Christians are converted by the Spirit. Christians are instructed by the Spirit. The infilling of the Holy Spirit is something else. It is possible. It is possible to be convicted by the Spirit, converted by the Spirit, instructed by the Spirit, but yet, yet not yet filled by the Spirit what does the Bible mean when it talks about the infilling of the Spirit? The more you and I open our hearts to God, the more the Spirit fills our life and empowers our life. So as we make commitments to Christ, the Spirit fills, infills us, and empowers us. Just before the coming of Jesus, the Bible promises that there'll be an outpouring of the Spirit proportionate to the task before us. We call that the Lateran. So the task before us is so great, the task before us is so large that the church on earth cannot accomplish it. So God promises an abundant amount of the Holy Spirit. Let's suppose that I am traveling from Louisville, Kentucky to Los Angeles. And let's suppose I'm traveling by car. Would it be a wise thing for me to fill up my gas tank before I leave? But will one tank of gas get me from here to Los Angeles? What do you think? But my tank is full. But my need is what? Greater. However full you are with the Holy Spirit now, however much the Holy Spirit works in the church now, the need to impact the world with the gospel is what? Greater. It's greater. So the question becomes, how can you and I participate in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the latter days of Earth history? Let's look at some texts. The 11th chapter of the book of Luke. Luke, the 11th chapter. Luke, the 11th chapter, in the 13th verse. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? This is the A. The A of the reception of the Holy Spirit is to ask. To be on our knees saying, God, today I want to be your man. Today I want to be your woman. But you know how weak I am and how powerless I am. Grant to me your spirit to be the person I need to be. I can't do this in my own strength. Lord, I long for the infilling of your spirit today to be a witness to the people around me. But you know how weak I am, how incapable I am, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit so I can be that powerful witness you want me to be. Ask is the first step in the reception of the Holy Spirit. It's a heart that is asking. When young people together are seeking God and asking, and they're praying in small groups, it makes an incredible difference. There's a young man living in the country of Wales. He was the son of a miner, worked in the mines for many, many years. But he came to recognize that he was destined to do more than simply make money in the mines. He got a small group of young people and they began to pray. And they prayed. He prayed by himself for about six years. He started when he was about 14, 15 years old, prayed till he was 21, 22 by himself, but he had other young people from time to time. But when he was in his early 20s, he really sought God in prayer. And a mighty revival broke out in Wales, and over 100,000 people were converted in a six-month period. And this young man prayed with uh, smaller prayer groups, prayer groups have been powerful agencies used by God to initiate revival down through the centuries. It's one thing to pray yourself, but it's another thing to have a prayer group. You know, Ellen White makes that statement in seventh volume of the Testimonies, page 21 and 22. Why do not two or three meet together and plead with God for the salvation of some special one and then still another? In your school, are there groups of two, three, four, five that are praying together? In your office, do you pray together? In your church, do you pray together? As small groups meet together and pray, seeking the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God will do some amazing things. So the first A is, is ask. As we are asking, the second aspect of all of this is praying Psalm 51. I pray Psalm 51 often. As we're praying and asking God for the Spirit, and asking him for power of the Holy Spirit in witness. I often pray Psalm 51. Often I lie on my bed and pray Psalm 51. Psalm 51, starting with verse 7. I shared with some of you how to pray through the Psalms. And let me share that again for those of you who may have missed it, or I didn't go into detail in it. Somebody asked me after class this morning about praying through the Psalms. When I pray to God, that is my, I am talking to God. When I read the word, God is talking to me. There is nothing that delights God more than my talking to God back through his own word. There are different kinds of Bible study. There is some kind of Bible study where you study to learn information. Sometime I'm writing a book and I'm studying to learn information to write that down. But that's not sufficient to nourish the soul. There's some kind of study that I'm doing when I'm studying for a sermon. And all of that is good. But there's also devotional study where the only reason for your study is to know God. The only reason for your study is to come heart to heart with God. And one of the ways you can do that is by praying through the Psalms. So the Psalms become the language of the soul to speak back to God. And as you are praying, you'll be amazed at how you sense that you're shut in with God's presence. That the Bible becomes the subject matter for your prayers. Remember, Ellen White says uh, says uh, Open the Bible and read it on your knees. What she's talking about there is a devotional life that is focused on the word, where the word becomes the subject matter for your prayer life. So, for example, often I will take Psalm 51, for example, start with verse 7. Purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was a cleansing agency, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. And I, I will sometimes stop there and say, Lord, I want you to do that for me. I'll be lying on my bed, Lord, wash me, wash me. My motives may not be pure. I may have selfishness. I may have pride. Lord, I want to receive your Holy Spirit, so wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you've broken may rejoice. Lord, I haven't been too joyful today because I knew that I let somebody down. I knew that I disappointed somebody else. I feel the pangs of guilt and condemnation And Lord, make me to hear that joy and gladness again. I've been broken in your presence. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Lord, please do that for me. Hide your face from my sins. Create in me a new heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Times I waver, Lord. I'm up and down. I'm not real steadfast. But Lord, renew a right spirit in me. Uh, Renew a steadfast spirit. Don't cast me away from your presence, Lord. Don't take your... Holy Spirit, from me. Lord, I need your Holy Spirit every moment. I need it convicting. I need it converting. So what you are doing is you're asking God for the Spirit. Secondly, you're taking the Word of God and letting the Word of God break your heart, letting the Word of God speak to your heart, and talking to God back through His Word. Then I will teach transgressions your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Lord, when is that going to happen? When you purge me with history, when you wash me, when I'm filled with joy, when, when I know that I have a clean heart created by God, then God, I'll be able to teach transgressions, your ways, then sinners are going to be converted. So Psalms becomes, or the Psalms become your subject matter for prayer. The Psalms become the basis of repentance. They become the basis of confession. You can do that with the Psalms. You can also do it by meditating on the life and death of Jesus. You know, there are six chapters in the Bible on the death of Christ. And if you want a rich devotional experience that gives the Holy Spirit time to work, that opens your heart to receive the latter rain, take those six chapters. It may take you two months, three months to get through all six chapters, but you're not, it's not a speed reading program. Here are the six chapters. Psalm 22. And as you're reading them, ask God to impress you with how your sins hurt Jesus. The reason we sin and sin again is because our sins haven't hurt us enough. Suppose here is a hot stove, and I take my hand and I put it on it. I whew, That burns me. But what if I put it on it right again? What do I know? It didn't burn me enough, right? Because if it burns me enough, what am I not going to do? I'm not going to put it on again, right?" The reason we sin and sin again is because we don't understand the cost of sin to Jesus and the pain that that brings to Him. So when I'm praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I'm asking God to help me repent of my selfishness. I'm asking, I'm talking to God through His Word and at times I'm reading about what Christ went through for me and asking Him to break my heart over what He went through for me. So here are the six chapters, Psalm 22. Isaiah 53, Matthew 26 and 7 together. I link them together as one unit. So Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Matthew 26 and 27, Mark 14. Let me check for just a second if I want to include 15. As. Sometime, you know, the chapter doesn't quite end, and you need both chapters to get the complete story. Let me just look at Mark 14 for a minute here. So you want to look again at, yes, Mark 14 and 15. Mark 14 and 15. Then you look at Luke chapter 23 and John chapter 19. So let me repeat those six units of chapters again. You look at Psalm 22... Isaiah 53, Matthew 26 and 27, Mark 14 and 15, Luke 23, and John 19. Take time with those chapters. Now, what is going to happen to you when you read those chapters? Zechariah tells us. Zechariah chapter 13, last text for the day. Zechariah chapter 13. And we're going to look there at what happens to us. Zechariah 13. In that day, a fountain will be opened, verse 1, for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. In that day, a fountain will be opened. What is that fountain? It's the fountain of grace. Back to Zechariah 12 and verse 10. What will God do for the house of David as we come to the cross? And I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for the firstborn. What happens when we look at the cross? When we look at the one we pierced and see what our sins have done to Jesus, we mourn because of that sin and turn away from it. When will the Holy Spirit be poured out in abundant power on a group of Adventist young people and adults in the Adventist church? The Holy Spirit will be poured out when we long for heaven more than we long for earth. When we long for the things of eternity more than we long for the things of time. When we long to please Jesus more than we long to please ourselves. When we long to live for him rather than longing to live for ourselves. When, we, when this world becomes so distasteful to us that all we want is what Jesus wants. That's my desire. Isn't that your desire? Let's stand and pray. Father in heaven, the desire of our heart is to see you face to face very soon. We long to be in eternity with you, not simply for our sake, but for your sake. Not only did you come to the cross to bear the guilt and shame of sin. Not only did sin bring pain to your heart then, it brings pain to your heart now. So, Father, grant to us this sense of longing for eternity. Open our hearts to receive the outpouring of the latter rain. May we seek for it. We sense that what you did in the New Testament can be done again, and we just pray that you'd accomplish that through us. We pray that soon your work would be finished and that Jesus would come and that we could go home to heaven with you. In Christ's name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.